Welcome to Disrupted Asia, Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience, a podcast series by Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Asia. The Asian continent is often portrayed in different narratives and concepts that come with their own strategic visions and implications for the regional balance of power. The most prominent are China's Belt and Road Initiative and the concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific. In this episode of our two-part segment on competing and converging visions of Asia, we take a closer look at the Indo-Pacific, a concept and a region that have regained significant momentum in recent months. Germany just recently was the latest country to come out with a comprehensive strategic document and guiding principles for the Indo-Pacific. A critical country in this endeavour is no doubt India, soon to be the most populous country in the world and already a major regional power and rising global power. In an effort to better convey its vision for the region, India has been stepping up its economic, political and security cooperation both within the so-called Quadrilateral Group, or Quad in short, which brings together India, the United States, Australia and Japan and also vis-à-vis Southeast Asia and the ASEAN countries. We will explore India's changing foreign and security policy in a highly dynamic strategic environment, the difficult relations between China and India, the role of the European Union and implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. A full plate of complex issues that we will jointly unpack with Dr. Tanvi Madan, who is joining us from Washington, D.C. Tanvi is the director of the India Project and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy in the Foreign Policy Programme at the Brookings Institution. Her work focuses on India's role in the world order and its foreign policy, especially relations with China and the US. Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia. I'm Kai Dittmann. We are excited to have with us today Dr. Tanvi Madan. Tanvi, maybe let's directly dive in. It would be interesting to start with a general overview of the Indo-Pacific as a geographical construct from India's perspective. In your view, what has been the general vision towards this region? Uh, hi, Kai. Um, I think one of the things with the Indo-Pacific for India is to remember is India was a late signer on to this concept of the Indo-Pacific. There was some concern in previous years in India that thinking about the Indo-Pacific linking up or uh, the Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean regions uh, would involve India into areas and issues that it didn't have the capacity or willingness to deal with. And so India was reluctant to embrace this concept. But over the last few years, India has embraced this concept of an integrated region. Um, its vision is similar to some of others, but it, it essentially talks about not an Indo-Pacific strategy, but a vision or a concept which has some principles that India has outlined, which is its objective is to see a free, open, and inclusive region where there's respect for international law, where principles and norms like freedom of navigation in the broader sense of the term and freedom of overflight are protected, where sovereignty and territorial integrity are safeguarded, where there's good governance, and then linked to some of the economic issues where there's a sustainable development and free and fair economic uh, engagement. So I think those are kind of India's broad principles. The one other thing I would say about India's principles or vision of the region is that what India would like is a region that is not dominated by any one actor. Mm -hmm. 
To what extent has then India's vision that you mentioned before has changed over the past years, aligned more or less with other regional actors, so like Japan, Australia or ASEAN member states? So as you would have heard from some of the principles I outlined, these are quite similar to, to principles that others that you mentioned have outlined as well. When they've outlined their concepts of whether it's the Indo-Pacific or the free and open Indo-Pacific And I think there is another thing that at least India shares with Australia and Japan, and perhaps not ASEAN as a collective, but individual ASEAN countries might also sign on to this concept, which is I think that Australia and Japan do, when they're thinking about this region, they do view that a key challenge in the, in the Indo-Pacific is that they feel that there's one country that is a challenge to these principles, or at least not following them as it should. And that country is China. So I think that's one shared kind of, other than the broader principles that I think these countries do share. I think this is another, because there's a similar view of this key challenge. But I also think between a number of these countries, there is this idea that they'd rather see a multipolar region. Uh, you know, the middle powers see it because they don't want China dominated. Smaller states might see it because they would prefer choice between different options. And as far as, at, le at least I think, Australia, Japan, and India are concerned, they all, and I, I suspect a number of ASEAN countries, another place where there's a shared idea and vision is that they would like to see largely a U.S. presence. They see the U.S. as part of the solution uh, and a participant in this, uh, in this region. India had historically kept its distance from large powers. And now we see that the Quad regained momentum in recent years and India increasingly playing a more active role in it. Would you say that this marks the end to India's traditional non-alignment policy? So it's interesting to go back and kind of look at both what non-alignment was and what it wasn't. And I often like to talk about the strategy underlying non-alignment, which is diversification. And that explains why this has survived the Cold War. Because otherwise, you know, the question, especially in the post-Cold War, Cold War world was, what are you aligning against? There was a unipolar A world. And so I think for India, this was always the question of diversification, which is have multiple partners. When you translate that into the present day, what that means is, is that India, it's not that India will have equidistant relationships with the US and China. It does not. And it will not have equidistant relationships uh, with both. But it also means India is not going to kind of Uh, join a block with the U.S. Will it work with the U.S. to balance uh, China? Absolutely. Will it work with other countries in the region? Yes. And so what India has built, whether it's through the Quad or, or its relationships with other uh, kind of middle, you know, middle or major powers, however you want to define them, uh, like France, for example, like Russia even, uh, is this idea of these partnerships, what they do is they do two things for India. One, as India sees a challenge from China, uh, from Chinese behavior more than kind of China's rise per se, India sees these partnerships as being useful alone and collectively as helping build India build its own capabilities, so to build its own strengths, but also to help balance China in the region and ensure that that kind of multipolar region that I mentioned, that it, it prevails and that a rules-based order in the region prevails. I think there's an understanding in India that India cannot do this alone. And so these partnerships in some senses are essential. And because India is not choosing one partner or even the one block uh, for that matter, 
you'll see India not just join the Quad, uh, but other coalitions as well. So I think India might be quite comfortable in the kind of philosophical sense with this kind of era of coalitions that we're moving into because it can get to pick and choose uh, which ones it wants to join. It prefers issue-based coalitions than ideologically-based coalitions. And so I see, I think you you should see kind of the Quad in that context. There are certainly a set of issues that the Quad agrees on, uh, but there are other areas where India will work with a different set of countries. So um, you mentioned a lot of middle powers and large powers. The one player that is sometimes absent from that is the EU. What do you think is the general perception in India about the EU's capacity to play a larger role in the Indo-Pacific? I think um, the view is evolving. I think it's changed uh, considerably over the last few years. And I think particularly since about 2016, 2017, there's not a sense necessarily that I think India always believed the EU had capacity. I think the question for an Indian mind was, did, did the EU have the willingness, whether as a collective or even in terms of individual member states? And I think part of that was because there was a sense that that the EU had other priorities, which was fair enough, but also that it had a very different view of, you know, the challenge that, for example, a country like China posed. Uh, a few years ago, there was a sense, and you'd see this when you'd sit in discussions in, you know, India, EU, or even for that matter, US-European discussions, where the US and Indian sides would be laying out kind of their concerns about some of China's behavior And you'd have a number of kind of the Europeans in the room saying, no, no, it's an economic partner. You people are all exaggerating these geopolitical and other concerns. But I think there's particularly been a concern on both concern on the economic side in terms of China's behavior, taking over companies or, you know, trying to use uh, economic leverage. But also, I think this idea the EU's become, there is a sense, you know, once it's called this idea I think embodied in this idea that it's, it's been named a system, you know, systemic rival now, that there are broader concerns, at least through the rules-based order, the sense of EU unity with its with China's kind of 17 plus one formulation, etc. So I think India is watching, has watched how the EU itself has become more concerned about uh, China's impact. So again, not its rise per se, and I think there's still the sense in India that you know the EU is far more focused on. Uh, and particularly certain member states far more focused on what it can do to engage with China. But I think there is an understanding that there is growing convergence on the subject of the challenges in the region. And so I think where India has seen, and I think the EU particularly seen as making a contribution as the EU, is perhaps the economic space uh, and the technology space. So, for example, the standard setting. Uh, as everybody becomes concerned that Beijing would impose its own standards or at least spread them through, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative, that there are other standards that can be offered. I think also with the EU connectivity strategy, it can bring resources, technical assistance uh, to the table at a time that India cannot provide these things alone. I think it would like to see the EU do more in the maritime security space, etc. So I think there is a question. I don't think there's too much questioning about capacity. I think there's still a question to some extent, but it has reduced considerably about the willingness uh, willingness part. But on, a, on the other hand, I think you, it has to be mentioned that with individual member states, India has done a fair bit. So France, for example, I would say is India's primary partner uh, in the defense and security space amongst the European countries, even to some extent displacing India's traditional partner, which was the UK. 
Um, so we were now talking a lot about the strategy and where India's priorities lie. But there's also sometimes the question of how successful this uh, policy has been in terms of balancing the influence of other countries in the region. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are the gaps that these policy approaches might still be needed to fill? Well, I think, you know, from, for, for, from kind of, so if you look at it in terms of the gaps in India's approach, I think to some extent it's still this question of capacity and capability. I think there's been increasing willingness to do things with countries. Um, I think the gaps are in uh, implementation of the strategy, the, these kind of different approaches. But, you know, it's kind of India doing enough. And so whether that is building its own domestic capability, whether that is, for example, do getting the projects, it's the connectivity projects in the neighborhood done fast enough, uh, whether that's in terms of is it doing as much as it could with Southeast Asia, uh, you know, ASEAN's less so now, but still these questions in the number of the ASEAN countries about why isn't India doing more? And I think the other gap that one could talk about, and I think you've heard this from a number of people in the region, is on the economic side, on the trade side, which is, you know, so far India's in the last few years, India has been more protectionist than previous governments before uh, the current Modi government, and it's for different reasons. But this question of, you know, is uh, India obviously didn't sign on to the to RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Now that wasn't that was largely because India is kind of this government has turned away from FTAs, but they particularly saw this one as an FTA with China, which they did not uh, want. But there is this broader question about, you know, where does India stand? It cannot just have a diplomatic, cultural approach to the region and maybe an economic one that has, it talks about connectivity, but not trade and investment. So I think that's the, that's the other gap that I would highlight. That's interesting. So maybe focusing a little bit more because the elephant in the room is the somewhat the bilateral relationship between India and China. So has there been a reset in India's China policy following the border standoff in the Galvan Valley this summer? So how realistic is it if there is a reset for India to have a downgrade in its economic relationships with China? You know, that's an interesting question, set of questions, and it is being debated fiercely. Um, it is somewhat ironic that last year in October in 2019, when uh, Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi met in southern India for a bilateral kind of what they called an informal summit, which is a bit of an oxymoron. They had talked about, you know, bringing this relationship, uh, taking it across different, you know, beyond the government, greater people-to-people -people ties, greater business ties, greater cultural ties, uh, educational exchanges. And if you want to actually even judge it by just that, you can see that there has been already a bit of a reset. Um, so I think two things this 2020 has really been, I, I think it has been a significant year, not just because of the boundary standoff and the clash on June 15, the fatal clash, but even before that, uh, COVID itself. Lots of questions in India being asked about Beijing's approach to particularly the outbreak, uh, but also its behavior vis-a-vis -vis the WHO, et cetera, that really made people ask questions. And it was less abstract a question of what would a China-led order in the region look like? And so I think between COVID and the boundary standoff and seeing this pattern of Chinese assertiveness across the board, but not just vis-a-vis -vis, uh, India, again, you know, vis-a-vis -vis some of the Southeast Asian countries, vis-a-vis -vis Australia, Japan, others. So I think there is this question uh, about Chinese kind of intentions and that, you know, is this a different China? I think what you've seen in terms of a reset, you know, there's a, there are calls for reassessments across the board. I haven't seen this kind of consensus 
including from most of India's China hands who've served, who've built this relationship, built the engagement, built the avenues of engagement with Beijing. Um, so I think and, and where you've seen it is, one, the Indian government itself sending a message that while China might say nothing very much happened, this was a blip, you know, let's go back. It's a restoration of the status quo ante in the relationship. They want to go back to normal, to business as usual. Whereas India is sending a message that there will not be any going back to normal uh, unless there's a restoration of status quo ante at the boundary, which is China, the PLA needs to move back to where it was in late April. And so I think you've heard the rhetoric. I think you've seen it also in government statements, uh, in government policies, on the economic side, on the uh, uh, telecom side, telecommunication side, on the technology side, and now increasingly on, uh, I would say, the educational and exchange side, where you've seen India now put in place. I don't want to take the time to list it out. It's not just a techno, you know, the banning of certain apps, but in each of these areas, we've seen the Indian government put in place um, policies that will restrict or impose extra scrutiny on Chinese, the, the engagement and investment and involvement of Chinese actors and entities. Um, and so I think that in and of itself, if it sustains, will we'll reset the relationship in a way we haven't seen over the last 20 years. You've seen progressive, or at least last 17, 18 years, you've seen India try to engage with China, put the boundary issue aside. I think you've seen a change where India is now saying, we can't put the boundary issue aside. We will link what we do on the economic side to what you do on the boundary. You pointed out earlier that uh, the uh, COVID pandemic had been one of the stumbling blocks in the relationship between India and China. Do you think that the pandemic has increased international and regional coordination? Or do you think that India became a little bit more inward looking today? You know, I think it's an interesting question, because on the one hand, uh, the Indian government's actually been very active on the international stage in terms of outreach diplomatically. The prime minister was, I think, did, and I think maybe Zoom makes this or whatever the version of it that, that they use you know, it makes it much more possible, but he was on the phone reaching out. Some of it was competitive. They saw China doing it as well, and so they wanted to. Some of it was actually very targeted in terms of providing technical assistance, medical supplies, uh, kind of its own version of aid diplomacy to say, look, China's not your only option, uh, but also to say India can be a resilient and re reliable supplier in times of crisis and has that ability to act. So it, it has kind of been active in this bilateral space as an aid provider. Interestingly, it's also been part of a couple of efforts that the U.S. has put together, these kind of quad plus, or at least one quad plus, another kind of these collective efforts, one which was put together by the Deputy Secretary of State, Steve Began, which involved four countries, four quad countries, uh, plus New Zealand, South Korea, and Vietnam. And then another one at the Secretary of State level, Uh, which at least initially had the Quad countries plus Brazil, Israel, uh, and South Korea, and to actually discuss both how to deal with various aspects of COVID fallout, but also kind of talking about what comes after, uh, how to rebuild more resilient economies, part of what is underlying that resilient to supply chain disruptions from China. And so I think you have seen some of these kind of more plurilateral step, you know, India being willing to do things bilaterally, plurilaterally, Even at the WHO, where, you know, for example, India over the next year is going to be the chair of the WHO executive board. So India is doing kind of all of the above, 
But it is also quite worried that the multilateral system hasn't been up to the task. And it doesn't just, I think, point fingers at China. I think, you know, the U.S. role as well in that, in not kind of doing enough. I think India is not happy about the U.S. decision to at least announce that they will potentially walk away from the WHO. It wants to see the U.S. more involved, not less involved in these regions. And so I think you have seen, and there's some discussion, for example, now on a Japan, Japanese proposal of a uh, with India and Australia of a supply chain resiliency initiative that they said they would welcome ASEAN involvement in as well. And so I think you're seeing these different moves, but I think there is a sense in India as well that the multilateral system, whether it's the WHO or the UN, is not up to the task, so you need these other mechanisms. Uh, I will just say one thing, though. On the economic side, there is some concern uh, about that inward-looking India that you mentioned, because there's been a push even before the boundary standoff, but both COVID and the boundary standoff after that, you've heard the Indian government talk about uh, moving back to economic self-reliance. They've also said they want to be part of global value chains. And so trying to reconcile those two will be interesting to see. Is India going to go back to you know, import substitution, you know, ensuring that domestic companies have a free ride while others don't? You know, is there going to be a level playing field? Uh, and so you know, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of a mix. I think you'll see both tendencies in India, which coexist constantly, which is this idea of being more integrated with the world, but, but also to some extent uh, to want to build their own companies and initiatives. Um, maybe on a final note, what is your forecast for the Indo-Pacific region for the coming decade? Many have speculated that the region has a number of flashpoints that could get fueled into major conflicts in the future. Do you see these um, points more as alarmist or do you think there is a realistic threat of that? Um, so, you know, it's maybe it's the historian in me, but I don't like to do forecasts. I like to do scenarios because I don't think these things are predetermined. You know, you could find certain common trends. Yes, it seems to be a more competitive trend. But I think this will very much, whether it is, you know, whether it is uh, going to be kind of a more contested region or we go back to an area where people are talking about cooperation Or you just, you know, even turn in, in some areas, you could even like draw out the scenario of conflict in the region. I think these will depend on decisions made in different countries, whether it is capitals of the major powers or in smaller states. I mean, one thing, you know, for all the reasons why this is different from the Cold War, one thing history has taught us, the Cold War and others, is that sometimes it's decisions made in small states the, uh, or smaller states that, Uh, drag everybody else in, sometimes unwillingly, and that can that can shape the region. So I think it, it is not predetermined. I think it's sometimes decisions. Things can happen by accident. So I think the idea is to minimize that thing of inadvertently stumbling into something, but also making decisions that are kind of smart for the collective interests, but also individual interests. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. I think that when we are looking at these forecasts, if it were predetermined, then the work of thousands of diplomats and thousands and thousands of researchers would somewhat be in vain. So, yeah. That's I, true, Kai. We'd all be out of a job. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like that you give us back some agency. So <laughs> definitely thank you for that. And we are also at the end of the interview. So thank you, Tanvi. It was great having you with us today. And thank you for these great insights into India's foreign policy goals, the Indo-Pacific and its tensions, but also its promises. Thanks, guys. It was a real pleasure. This was Dr. Tanvi Madan, Director of the India Project at Brookings. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupted Asia Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. This podcast was brought to you by Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Asia. Interview by Kai Dittmann, research by Aryaman Bhatnagar, directed by Mirko Gunter and produced by Andovar. Make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it and don't forget to visit our website fes-asia.org for regular updates on freedom, justice and solidarity in Asia. Asia.